Well, good morning, friends. It's really a pleasure and a privilege to be with you, uh, not only today, but also through the week, God willing. And uh, thank you very much for the invitation to come and to spend time with you around the Word of God. My name's Ian Jameson, and uh, my wife Rebecca and I live in the town of Erskine, which is in Renfrewshire, just outside of Glasgow, uh, very close to the airport, conveniently. And I made my way over uh, yesterday uh, to Belfast, and David kindly came and picked me up. So it's lovely to be here, and thank you for your warm welcome and the invitation to spend time with you. And I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Ezekiel. To the book of Ezekiel, please, friends, in chapter 1. Ezekiel in chapter 1. And we're going to be spending time with the Lord's help this week in this wonderful, complex, but uh, encouraging and vivid and wonderful book of Ezekiel this week. And all I want to do with the Lord's help this morning, friends, is to look at the first three verses. To look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3. And um, I want to look at them in detail. Now, uh, as we spend time in Ezekiel through the week, we will um, be looking at larger sections of the book. We won't be able to, of course, look at all of the book. We will just be looking at some highlights uh, in the book of Ezekiel. But this morning I want just to, uh, as it were, slow down a little and look at chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 3. So it's a, a book, of course, that's precious to all believers in the Lord Jesus, a book that's precious to those who believe in Bible prophecy. And I know that I'm speaking here in a church which places high value on the second coming of the Lord Jesus, a church which is expectant for the Lord's soon return. And that's a wonderful thing, uh, to be able to be amongst believers who uh, have that in common, uh, this expectation of the soon return of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, a confidence, of course, in what the Bible teaches about the future and uh, a shared conviction that we can trust what the Bible says about the future uh, with 100% certainty. And so I invite you to look at Ezekiel chapter 1, and let's read the first three verses. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. In the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, The word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him. Amen. Let's just come before the Lord once again in prayer as we turn to his word. Almighty God and dear Heavenly Father, we thank thee this morning for the great privilege it is to approach thee. We do so through the torn curtain, through that new and living way which has been made for us by our wonderful Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, Father, that in a few moments we will turn to consider uh, the great events of Calvary, to remember our Lord Jesus in his humiliation, in his sacrificial death there upon Golgotha's hill. And we pray that our hearts would be prepared, Father, to remember him in the way that he has asked us to and to show forth his death until he comes. Father, we look to thee now for blessing as we read thy word together. We look to the Holy Spirit himself, that he might be our teacher, that he might do his great work of leading us into all truth, and that we might make much of the Lord Jesus this morning. We pray that our affection for him would grow. We pray, Lord, that our likeness to him would increase. We pray, Father, that our grasp and our grip on a world which is passing away would diminish and that our affection, our appreciation of our Saviour would just grow and grow. 
And so we look to thee for blessing this morning, recognizing our weakness and our absolute dependence upon thee. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, it really is lovely to look at this book of Ezekiel together. And uh, I really just wanted to focus on these three verses of chapter one to give us an introduction, yes, to the book, but also to the man, the man Ezekiel. Where do we find ourselves uh, historically when we read the book of Ezekiel? Well, we find ourselves uh, at a very low ebb in the history of God's people, God's ancient people, God's people of promise, the Jews. And we remember that in 586 BC, that southern kingdom, that kingdom which had shown so much promise, has now gone into exile. That kingdom of Judah, Judah and Benjamin together, has now gone into exile. And that exile happens in various waves. But we're told here in Ezekiel a number of important timings. First of all, we learn that this is in the 30th year. And you could ask, well, the 30th year of what? Well, I would judge, friends, that he's talking about his 30th year of his own life. This is a man who is 30 years of age. It came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives. But then the history is given to us in verse 2. In the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. Now in a few moments, friends, I want us to look at the book of Second Kings, and I want us to look at the book of Second Chronicles, and I want us to notice, friends, how they end very differently. We remember, of course, that they cover significantly the same period of time in general, Second Kings and Second Chronicles, and yet the two books end very differently. We'll look at that in a moment. Because King Jehoiachin is a very significant character, and we'll touch on that just in a moment's time. Now, the, the name Ezekiel is a name which means God will strengthen. God will strengthen. I was glad to reflect on that as uh, my ear infection uh, set in on uh, last Sunday night, and I've not felt very strong uh, this past week. Uh, but the Lord's helped, and uh, with the medication that I'm on now, I'm feeling uh, fine for preaching this morning, uh, and I'm grateful to him for that. But, you know, God will strengthen, and that runs all the way through the book of Ezekiel, and we'll touch on it time and time again. This was a man who was given unique insights, unique insights into the future. The children of Israel find themselves separated from the land of promise. God had prepared a place for Israel uh, in the land of Canaan. He had prepared a place for his people. We're going to be considering that tonight, actually, as we preach the gospel. And um, he prepared this perfect place, a land flowing with milk and honey, And yet, of course, it had been given to Abraham in perpetuity. But there is a difference between ownership and possession. I studied law at university, at Edinburgh University, and um, you learn about this, about the difference between ownership and possession. Some of you might have read, as children, um, works by Patricia Sinjin, Treasures of the Snow, uh, various books like that. And her father was a well-known Bible teacher in England called Harold Sinjin. Um, amongst the assemblies in the United Kingdom, uh, he was really uh, looked up to and admired. He was a wonderful man, a very godly man, a very humble man, Harold St. John, Patricia's father. And he was very absent-minded. Now, that gives me a bit of hope because I'm very absent-minded. Uh, David and Hazel are going to have to look after me this week and remind me to bring my Bible and remind me not to lose my notes and remind me uh, not to sleep in and all sorts. I'm very absent-minded, but since I've got married uh, to Rebecca, who's a very organised primary school teacher, I'm much better now. Um, but uh, naturally, I'm very absent-minded. Well, so was Harold Sinjin. And he was talking about the difference between ownership and possession. And he said this, I am currently the owner of over 15 umbrellas, but the possessor of none of them. 
because they're on buses and trains and tubes and they're all sorts. I still own them. They still belong to me, but I don't have the joy of possessing them because I've left them here, there and everywhere. Now, of course, since God gave by covenant the land to Abraham and to his descendants, they have owned that land from that day to this. Nothing can change that. Nothing can undo that. They have owned that land by divine decree. And yet, of course, there are significant periods of human history where they have not possessed it, where they have not possessed it. And again, we're going to be addressing that a little bit uh, this evening. Now, we're dealing with one of those periods here as we open the book of Ezekiel where God's people find themselves through their own sin and their own apostasy separated from the land of promise, living in a godless nation, the nation of Babylon. And there they are in exile And we step back from the pages of the Bible at this point, and I suppose we could ask this question, what about the promises of God? What about the purposes of God? How are the purposes of our great and mighty God being outworked on the face of earth's history at this point? What are God's plans for the future when his nation is separated from the land, when the very city where he said he would make his name dwell And he, as it were, staked the divine reputation on the nation of Israel and on the city of Jerusalem in particular, on Zion. How are God's purposes being worked out? Where the northern kingdom years before has been taken off into Assyria and really disappeared off the page of earth's history. And now the southern kingdom is in exile too. It had seemed at times, hadn't it, that there was hope for the southern kingdom during the the reigns that brought revival like Josiah and Hezekiah and others. And yet it ended in the same way. It ended in exile and God's people find themselves in Babylon. Well, here we find God's man for the hour, Ezekiel. And I want us to look at four aspects of this man, four aspects of this man that we read in these first three verses of Ezekiel. I want you to notice, first of all, with me that he was a priest. That's our first point for this morning, that this man was a priest. Secondly, I want you to notice that he was a priest given visions of the future. He was a priest given visions of the future. Thirdly, I want you to see that he was a priest given visions of the future who was entrusted with a message for his people. He was entrusted with a message for his people. And lastly, this was all in a foreign land. That's the last point. This was all in a foreign land. Now, I want you to do a bit of uh, work in your Bibles this morning and turn back with me to Exodus, please. To the book of Exodus and to chapter 19. The book of Exodus and chapter 19. And I want us to think a little bit about what it means for Ezekiel to have been a priest and how it applies to us this morning. Exodus chapter 19. And I want us here, friends, to go back to what I would call the divine intention. The statement of divine intention. Exodus chapter 19. And we'll read from verse 5. And God says to Moses uh, these words. Now therefore... If you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Just before we move on, that's a remarkable thing. I know this is a church which cares about and prays for the nation of Israel and for the Jewish people and how wonderful a thing that is. But you know, it couldn't be more crystal clear here in the word of God, friends, that this people alone, this people uniquely, This people, in a special way, a completely distinct way, are special and chosen unto God. Verse 5 says this, They shall be for me a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So all the earth, 
All the earth, all the peoples, all the tribes, all the tongues belong to God. They are owned by divine right by the God of the universe. And yet he has, in covenant love, hasn't he, brothers and sisters, set his love uniquely upon this nation of Israel and made them into what you could call a picture book of the purposes of redemption for the rest of mankind. He has elected this nation and he has used them to be an illustration to the rest of a watching world about his divine purposes of redemption and reconciliation uh, that would eventually come, of course, through Christ. And here we are this morning, brothers and sisters, in uh, Northern Ireland uh, in 2023. And we are here this morning in large part, I hope, because we love the Lord Jesus. That's why we're here this morning, I hope. There might be some here this morning who don't have any choice and we're taken here by parents and not, not given a choice about that. And there might be people who are here for other reasons. There might be people here who are here because they feel they have to be. But I'm sure that the majority of us are here this morning because we love the Lord Jesus. And we've been drawn by cords of love to come here this morning because we want to know more about him. We want to give him our worship. And we want to remember him in his death because that's his due. And we want to be with his people because we've been brought to love the Lord Jesus and therefore we have been brought to love his people and to have a heart for those who love the same saviour. Now that saviour is the Messiah of the Jews. That saviour is the son of David. That saviour is the promised and pictured and prophesied one of the Old Testament. And yet we here as Gentiles, I'm sure that most of us here are Gentiles, if not, forgive me, but most of us will be Gentiles here this morning. It is a remarkable thing that 2,023 years later, after the birth of the Lord Jesus, there should be people like this gathered in a hall like this in Northern Ireland because we love this Messiah of the Jews. Because God has done something remarkable. God has done something absolutely remarkable in history of expanding the scope of his love to include us. And what a wonderful thing that is, friends, this morning. To know and love the Savior. To know and love the Messiah of the Jews and to come here for that very reason. Now we go back to the divine intention. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5. We've read verse 5. For all the earth is mine. And let's go on to read verse 6. And again, the Lord says to Moses, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Let me read verse 6 again. Ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. You remember what we read earlier, that Ezekiel is 30 years old when he begins to write Uh, the book of Ezekiel, begins to record the visions that uh, God gives him. Now we know from the book of Numbers uh, 4 that it was at 30 years old that priests began to serve. Uh, Now elsewhere, earlier in the the book of Numbers, uh, sorry, in chapter 8, sorry, later in the book of Numbers, uh, it says it could be 25. It seems as though there was a sort of apprenticeship period that they were uh, trained up from 25 and at 30 they actually began to serve. I'm not sure of the details, but it was around about the age of 30 that a priest was able to serve. Now, of course, it makes us think of our saviour, who Luke's gospel tells us was around about 30 years of age when his public ministry uh, begins. And we see the shadow of the priesthood there in our saviour. But let's see the divine intention here. The Lord is saying that this people are going to be a special and peculiar people unto him. He's going to use them as this picture book of redemption. And he says, further than that, you're going to be, to me, a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. Now the question is, brothers and sisters, was this divine intention for the nation of Israel, was this divine intention ever fulfilled in the people of Israel up until this point in human history? Have they ever really functioned as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Well, we find that sadly not. We find that sadly not. Now, we know that Israel will fulfill uh, more of a priestly role than it ever has done in a coming day. And we'll maybe touch on that more as the week unfolds. But thus far, they have not fulfilled this divine intention of being a kingdom of priests and a, a holy nation. Not at least in a perfect sense. Never. I want you to turn with me now to the book of First Peter. To the book of First Peter. And to see how this is reflected in Peter's writings in the New Testament. First Peter, and uh, starting in chapter 2. Familiar and precious verses. First Peter chapter 2. And we'll read from verse 4. Actually, we'll read from verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings... As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones or living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. By Jesus Christ. Friends, these are remarkable verses because they tell us about ourselves this morning. They tell us about what we constitute as God's people. That as those who are born again, who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as their Saviour, we are this morning a kingdom of priests. We are this morning priests in the royal household of God. Now, why is it that uh, I wasn't able to walk into Points Pass Baptist Church this morning and ask who your priest was? Uh, Why is it I wasn't shown to uh, the priest of this church? Well, because if I'd asked to see the priest of this church, they would have said, well, which one do you want to speak to? Which one do you want to speak to? Because this is a church of priests. And I'm looking out, I'm sure, at multiple priests this morning, men and women, bought by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who now are saints of God and priests in the royal household of God. And we can exercise, therefore, worship And we can come through that new and living way, through the torn curtain, and we can come and we can bring acceptable worship to God. When we go back to the establishment of the priesthood, what was it all about? What was the function of it? What was the purpose of it? It was so that man could worship God and that worship could be orchestrated in a way that a holy and an uncompromisingly righteous God could accept that worship. In his holiness and in his spotless purity, he could accept that worship mediated, as it were, through the priesthood that he himself established. And yet we go back to the history of the priesthood and we see how how quickly sullied it was and how flawed it was and how human it was and how fleshly it was and how doomed to failure it was really because it was always pointing forward to something perfect, rather someone perfect. And we know, of course, this morning that we have only one great high priest. We have only one great high priest and he's at the right hand of the majesty on high today. He is our priest. He's the only priest we'll ever need. 
And because we are in him, you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus, if you do know and love the Savior this morning, and you're his and he is yours, then this morning you're a priest in the royal household of God. And it doesn't matter if it's a a seven-year-old girl who's, in a very simple way, placed her faith and trust in Christ, or whether it's a a mature uh, Christian man who's been following the Lord Jesus Christ for decades, they are both priests in the royal household of God, and therefore can worship him in a way that is pleasing to him, in a way that he accepts and that he uh, relishes. Well, this morning we are priests. So I want us to identify with Ezekiel and to understand that as we study this book together, brothers and sisters, we are standing shoulder to shoulder with Ezekiel, the man, because he was a priest and we are a priest. But remember this, Ezekiel was brought up in a household where he understood from day one that his destination was to be a priest. His his destiny, his, his in, the intended purpose of his life was to function as a priest. And he would have looked forward to it as a young boy. Uh, I don't know what you wanted to be when you were young. Maybe you wanted to be like your dad or you wanted to do the same profession as he did. And um, my father's an engineer uh, in the oil industry and I never, I never nurtured that wish uh, to be an engineer in the oil industry. I, I missed that gene entirely. Um, but you look up to your dad, don't you? And you want to be like him uh, in many ways. And uh, he would have looked up to his father and he would have seen his father uh, going to the temple and exercising the privileges of being a priest and looking forward to that day when he would turn 30 and his apprenticeship would be over and he would finally be able to, to exercise that incredible privilege of orchestrating worship to the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and fulfilling all the roles of the priests in the Old Testament. You know, I was doing a bit of a study recently on the priests in the Old Testament and I was looking at all the different roles that they fulfilled and you know it stunned me friends to see the variety of of roles that a priest had to play in the Old Testament. So often uh, we are so conditioned in our minds to to think of a priest in terms of of the the false priesthood of Christendom that we see around us uh, today and yet of course it couldn't have been more different. It was a very all-encompassing role being a priest. They had to as it were be butchers. They had to be master butchers. They had to be architectural inspectors. They had to be well-versed in uh, diseases and inspecting diseases and, and mildew and uh, even the, the galleries on the top of houses. And they had all sorts of wide responsibilities as priests. And Ezekiel would have looked forward to it. And then came the exile. And then came the Babylonians. And then came this horde, this godless baying horde to the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, and everything that Ezekiel had looked forward to was ripped from him, taken from him. He's taken off into exile, and he'll never again see that temple. And he'll never again have the opportunity to exercise what he had been brought up to see as his God-given birthright, to be a priest before God Almighty. He'd never do it. He'd never stand back in the streets of Jerusalem, physically speaking. And he'd never be able to do what he thought he would always go on to do. And so he was a priest, but he was a priest who was given a different calling entirely. He was a priest who was turned into a prophet, of course. And he was a priest who was given a message, entrusted with a message. Just turn forward with me, just before we move on from priesthood, to the book of Revelation, please. The book of Revelation in chapter 4 and 5. 
My friends in the assembly that I'm in back home uh, say to me, Ian, whatever you're preaching on, you always read something from Genesis and something from Revelation. And I don't make any apology for that because the Bible is one wonderful story, isn't it? From beginning to end, it all unfolds this wonderful panorama of of redemption. And it's like a beautiful machine, isn't it? And all the cogs, well-oiled, they turn, don't they, in their own location in that machine. And if you were to remove any of them, you would spoil the operating of the machine. One wonderful story from beginning to end. Well, let's look forward to Revelation, please. And I want us to see two songs. We won't be able to look into this in great detail, but just to observe it together, brothers and sisters, Revelation 4 and 5, two songs, an ancient song and a new song. Now, we've sung the ancient song this morning uh, already, just before uh, the message. But Revelation chapter 4, let's read from verse 10. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, friends, that's a wonderful song, but it's an ancient song. That is a song that Noah could have sung, It's a song that Job could have sung. It's a song that could have been sung even by Adam. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power. Yes, why? For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were and are created. And we would all echo that this morning, and we would all rejoice in that. Now, Northern Ireland is beautiful, and uh, I haven't seen much of it, but I've enjoyed what I have seen. My wife, Rebecca, and I actually met in Northern Ireland. Um, She's Scottish, and I'm Scottish, but we met here. And uh, so I've got a soft spot for Northern Ireland. It's a beautiful part of of our country, isn't it? Uh, And so is Scotland too. Thankfully, we're all still in the same country. And, uh, And wonderful to be together and to see this beauty because we've got a creator God. We've got a creator God, the master builder. And yet in Revelation chapter 5, we read about a new song. Let's look over to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? Why? They said in the last song that God was worthy because of his creatorial power. Because he was the God who's put all things into place. But why is the lamb worthy? In verse 9. For thou wast slain. And hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And then verse 10 particularly I'd like us just to notice. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. Has made unto us it made us unto our God, rather, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And so this morning, friends, we are kings and we are priests. We are a kingdom of priests. Three classes of people in the Old Testament who were anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings, all anointed in the Old Testament. Only one, only one occupies all three of those offices. Prophet, priest, and king, and that's our wonderful saviour, the Lord Jesus. But we this morning have the privilege of having been made kings and priests to God. So let's remember as we study Ezekiel, we're dealing with a man who always thought he would be a priest, but ended up in the providence of God being a prophet, thinking that he'd missed out on his life's calling and God replaced that calling with a new calling of prophecy and of receiving these visions from God and informing us wonderfully about the future. 
So let's think just for a moment about the fact that we too have been entrusted with a message about the future. Turn with me to Titus, please. Titus in chapter 2. Titus and chapter 2. We are a people who have been informed about the future. Now, I'm so delighted to be amongst believers here uh, who know and love the scriptures and who believe what they say about the future. But I'm sure that you, like me, would recognize that that is not the picture more generally in Bible-believing evangelical circles in the world today, that there is a great lack of confidence in teaching about the second coming of the Lord Jesus, and that when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to the future, when it comes to Bible prophecy, Christians tend to fall into two camps, don't they? There are those who never want to talk about it, and there are those who never want to talk about anything else. And we don't want to fall into either of those camps, do we? We want to be totally biblically balanced, to take the whole word of God in its totality and enjoy everything that it has to offer and everything that God would teach us from this wonderful book of his self-revelation to mankind. And we wouldn't want to miss out on any part of it. And those who, who choose to ignore prophecy and choose to put it onto the shelf, they're, they're, they're denying themselves so much of the riches of God's word, especially as it relates to what lies ahead of us in the future. We have been entrusted with a message about the future. And the question to my heart, which I gently pass on to you this morning is, how much attention am I paying to what the Bible tells me about the future? Because it's been entrusted to me. It's been entrusted to me. And do I value it? Do I treasure it? I believe in something which I'm sure you believe in too, called the perspicuity of Scripture. Same uh, word that we get uh, perspex from. We call it perspex because you can see right through it. Perspex is clear, isn't it? You can see right through perspex. And the perspicuity of Scripture means this, that God has given us this book not to confuse us and not to mystify us and not to make us throw up our hands and say, I have no idea uh, what it means and I have no hope of understanding it, but rather God has given us this wonderful book for us to understand. And I believe, as I'm sure that you believe, that as we approach this Bible consistently and with the help of the Holy Spirit, the greatest teacher, we can understand what the Bible teaches. Sometimes when it comes to prophecy, when it comes to eschatology, people say in the wider church, don't they, the, the, the overarching emphasis is this. Just, just leave that. Just leave that to those who really know what they're talking about. Just leave those sort of subjects to the experts. Don't you worry yourself about those detailed subjects of the Lord's return and of prophecy and of God's purposes for Israel. Just leave that to those who know what they're talking about and you just go and listen to the minister and he'll tell you what it really means. Whereas we can say this, no, we believe that the Bible, the Bible is clear and understandable and that God will show us what the truth is from his word as we consistently and clearly study his word with his help. And so we are priests in the royal household of God and we've been entrusted with a message about the future. Let's look at Titus chapter 2 and just take some time to read uh, some verses here. I think I love these verses in Titus 2 because they so consistently and concisely lay out for us characteristics of the age in which we live. If we were to say, what is the age in which we live? What is the dispensation that we live in? I think we could summarize it with these verses in Titus chapter 2. Verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That tells us something about the past. That tells us something about the past. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath 
appeared to all men. Jesus Christ was really here upon the face of the earth over 2,000 years ago. The Son of God really did come, and he really did go to the cross, and he really did die for the sins of mankind, and he really did rise from the dead, and salvation really is available. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in this district of Northern Ireland can, by faith in Christ, be saved. They can come and place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And we can go out uh, into this week and take the gospel with us and make a genuine offer to the men and women, boys and girls around us and say, you can still be saved through faith and trust in Christ. That door is still open, isn't it? Isn't that wonderful? That in God's grace, it's still possible to be saved. So it's made it possible. The grace of God has appeared. And that characterizes our age. But then verse 12, we turn our attention to the present. Teaching us, that's present tense language, isn't it? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And so we're being trained, aren't we? And it's not always easy, and it's sometimes painful, and it's sometimes unpleasant, but we're being trained, aren't we, and molded to be godly, to be like our saviour. And those aspects of my conduct and my character, my personality, which aren't Christ-like, and there's so many of them, as there will be with you, are being slowly but surely uh, mortified and, and put to death by God. And he is shaping us and molding us and making us more like his son. And it's sometimes a painful process, isn't it? And um, if there was a red button up here on the platform that any Christian could come up and press and they would stop sinning today, every single one of us would come up here and press it. Because sin weighs us down, doesn't it? And it depresses us at times. And we wish we could just be perfect for our Savior. And one day we will. And one day we'll see him face to face. And there'll be no sin to spoil the picture. But then we move on to the future. Verse 13. Looking for, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we are absolutely characterized as God's people by being a waiting people, by being a watchful people, by being a people who open the curtains in the morning and say, Lord, perhaps today, perhaps today, maybe today is the day when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come. You know, we've already announced that the gospel is going to be preached this evening, but we've no guarantee. We've no guarantee because the Lord Jesus Christ could come in the next moment. The Lord Jesus Christ could return, and we hope he does, this very afternoon. I wonder if you would be ready to be received by him to the Father's house. And we're going to be considering that, should the Lord tarry, we're going to be considering that this evening. Well, we're priests and we've been entrusted with a message about the future and a message for our people. That was the third point. Ezekiel was given a message, yes, about the future, but he wasn't to keep it to himself. It was a message for his people. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, please. 1 Thessalonians, just for a moment or two. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And let me just take you to, again, familiar verses. 1 Thessalonians 1. And Paul is reflecting on the reception that he had when he went to Thessalonica with the gospel. A remarkable reception. And in chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, we read this. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Isn't that wonderful? What a definition of transformation. 
And for every Christian this morning, for every born-again believer this morning, we may not have had to uh, burn uh, idols in the public square. We may not have had to stop bowing down to physical gods. But every single one of us has that same testimony. Now, I'd love to get to know uh, some of you over the week. Please do come and introduce yourself to me. And I'd love to know how you came to know the Lord Jesus. I think that's one of the most wonderful things to know about somebody is how they came to know and to trust the Saviour. And every single one of you would have a different story, wouldn't you? A different testimony to how the Lord Jesus changed your life and and how he came and revealed himself to you and how you came to trust him as your Lord and Saviour. But all of us would be able to echo this united testimony that we turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And your idol will have been different from mine. And the person next to you, their idol will be different from yours. But we all turn to God from some idol, somewhere. And we've turned to to love, to live for, to serve the true and the living God. And then verse 10 says this, again, very much like Titus 2. And to wait. To wait for what? Rather, to wait for who? To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Repentance and faith. And the return of the Lord Jesus, these two things ought never to be separated. Historically, wherever the gospel was preached, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ was also preached. And it's so sad, it's so tragic that over time we've done a good job in the church of separating the two. And of saying, well the gospel's here and the gospel's simple and the gospel's for the unsaved. The return of the Lord Jesus, that's something altogether different. That's that's something you graduate to. That's something that you learn about much, much later. Or perhaps just avoid for life. These two things were always together, the gospel and the return of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is coming. You must be ready. You must be born again. Well, we too have been entrusted with this message, haven't we? And how wonderful to be bearers of the gospel. I wonder, friends, where our heart is in relation to the lost this morning. If you're a Christian, if you know and love the Savior this morning, I wonder where my heart is. I wonder where your heart is in relation to to those around us who are dying and who will go to hell if they don't place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And I wonder if I need my heart to be broken again and I wonder if all of us could do with that too. For the Lord Jesus to soften our hearts. Remember he was the one who looked upon the sheep, uh, looked upon the crowd rather and he had compassion on them for he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. We remember the saviour who the rich young ruler came to him And we know what's going to happen. We know that that rich young ruler is going to reject him. That rich young ruler is going to walk away from the offer of eternal life. And yet, the Lord Jesus knew all of that, didn't he? And it says, looking upon him, he loved him. Looking upon him, he loved him. I'm very touched by that. Because the Lord Jesus knew the young man would walk away. And still, it says, looking upon him, he loved him. And I think of neighbours of mine or I think of people I encounter in Erskine and Renfrew and they seem so far from God and they seem so utterly hopeless and they seem so separated from any uh, knowledge of the gospel or of God and yet I remember that the Lord Jesus looking upon them, he loves them and I need my heart too to be broken again for the lostness of the lost that I might be a bearer of the gospel to them. Ezekiel was a priest. He was a priest given a message about the future. He was a priest asked to minister to his own people. 
and to bring the good news of God to his own people. And lastly, this was all in the context of a foreign land. This was all in a godless foreign nation. Friends, the world is not our home. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that we're seeking a city that is to come. We don't have an enduring city here, but we're seeking a city that is to come. Ezekiel belonged to a people who were destined for home. They were destined to return. Just one more reference. I want to read to you. You don't need to turn there, but I want to read to you a verse or two from Psalm 102. And I was preaching on this psalm recently and thinking about these verses here. Psalm 102. And let me read verses 13 and 14. And right in the middle of this psalm, the psalmist says, But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come, for thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. The time to favor her, yea, the time is come. Jeremiah had told uh, God's people that there were 70 years to be served in exile. And I believe that's what the psalmist has in mind here that the set time is coming, that God will favor his people. And there it seems so hopeless by the, by the Kibar Canal there in Babylon. And they seem so far from the land of promise and so spiritually far from God. And yet, and yet there's coming a time when they will return. Ezekiel won't see it himself. It will be after his lifetime is over. But his people will return. And we too belong to a people who are destined for home, don't we? We belong to a people who are ready to go home. The rapture could be at any moment. And we'll be with the Savior. And we'll see him face to face. You know, there are people here this morning who have known and loved and worshipped and sung about and shared with others the Lord Jesus. For decades, perhaps. For decades. And yet nobody in the church this morning has ever seen him. We've never seen him. And yet one day our eyes will meet his eyes for the very first time. And we'll see the Savior face to face. And I have no idea what it's going to be like, friends. But I just can't wait for the day when we're going to see him for the very first time. And there's going to be no sin to spoil the picture, to spoil the experience of seeing the Lord Jesus. And we're going to be like him for we're going to see him as he is. We're going to go to the Father's house. Well, friends, I hope that as we study Ezekiel, we understand that we stand shoulder to shoulder with him. He was a priest as we are. He was entrusted with messages, visions about the future, and we've been told much about the future, friends, that we need to hold fast and hold dear. He was given a message from God for his people for his time, just as we have, as bearers of the gospel to those around us. And lastly, he was destined, uh, he belonged to a people destined to return home, just as we do. The rapture may happen after our lifetime. I don't think so, but the rapture may happen after our lifetime but we still belong to a people uh, ready to go home and what it's going to be like to see him. Amen.